Amen, friends. If you have a Bible with this morning, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to the first major teaching block. In Matthew, there are five major blocks of Jesus' teaching. One of the reasons this gospel is so treasured is because it includes huge chunks of Jesus' teaching. Not just what he did, but what he said about who he was and why he came. And this sermon, Matthew 5 to 7, is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's extremely famous. There's very likely that even if you've had a passing association with the church that you have heard of, the Sermon on the Mount. As we approach this sermon, though, there are some challenges that we have to deal with. One of those challenges is that as you think about the Sermon on the Mount, or you remember what you've heard of it, what stands out to most of us is how much law there is in this sermon, how many commandments, how many demands Jesus makes. And sometimes we can think of this sermon as kind of a sermon that shows all the things that we're not and makes us a little bit depressed. It can show us how far we fall short, and we can feel like the standards that Jesus gives are unattainable. In the second half of Matthew 5, he goes through and he says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, and he pretty consistently ups the ante, makes it more challenging. He even goes as far as saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 6, he warns about practicing righteousness before others and tells his disciples not to be anxious, even though they have every reason around them to be anxious. And we feel that when we look at those commandments. In Matthew 7, he lays out the two paths and talks about taking the log out of your own eye before you take the log out of someone else's. And we feel like, yeah, there's, there's just nothing but condemnation and law in this sermon. Even when we come to the beginning of it in Matthew 5, the first couple verses that set the scene, talk about Jesus going up on a mountain and sitting down, and then he gives these new commands, and that brings to mind, if we're familiar with the Bible, all of the Moses themes that we've already seen. What does Moses do? He goes up on a mountain, he receives commandments from the Lord, and gives them to the people. The law comes through Moses. We know from the book of John that grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ, but we don't really know how that comes to bear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches the ethical demands of the kingdom of heaven, and we're a little off-put. Like, what do we do with that? We know that he starts with kind of some nice sayings, these what are called beatitudes. You might have heard of that before. But these beatitudes feel less helpful sometimes because they feel a little bit like bumper sticker theology, like just, just random thoughts. They're nice thoughts. They're thoughts we might put on a pillow, but we don't really know how they're connected to one another or how they help us in the face of what follows the demand for righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What I want to do this morning is I want us to see as we explore this beginning of this sermon, how Jesus Though we expect him to come with law because of all the Moses stuff set up and because of what we know with the sermon, actually begins with grace. These beatitudes are what Jesus calls in verse 23 of chapter 4, the gospel of the kingdom. These beatitudes are good news, in other words. They give us good news that is the foundation for everything that follows. In the Beatitudes, Jesus pours out grace. This is how God has actually always functioned 
We think of all the commandments in the Old Testament, but we fail to recognize that chapters like Exodus 20, where we're given the Ten Commandments, start with the words, I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. They start, in other words, with God's saving grace. And then, after gathering a people to himself and being gracious to them and showing them who he is and his steadfast love and faithfulness, then he gives them these commands, which then become less a key into the kingdom and more a way to flourish in the kingdom of God under the king of kings. Jesus follows his father's example and he pronounces blessing in these beatitudes. Before he makes any demands of the kingdom, he starts with the blessings of the kingdom. In order for us to understand the blessings that he gives, we have to start with the question, what does it mean to be blessed? What does he mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc. I want to think about that before we even read the text, because I don't want us to hear this wrongly. I want us to really hear what he's saying. The concept of blessing specifically blessing from God, abounds in Scripture. We get it in the very first pages of our Bible. In Genesis 1, after God creates Adam and Eve, what does he do? In one twenty-eight, he blesses them. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God speaks words of blessing over them and then sends them out into the earth to accomplish the mission he gave them. We know from Genesis 3 that the curse interrupts the blessing. Because Adam and Eve turn away from the blessing of God and turn towards their own desires. And in rebellion, then they are cursed because of that rebellion. But God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he will one day restore blessing. One day the head of the serpent will be crushed by the heel of the offspring of the woman. That's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the first gospel promise. That blessing will be restored. In Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham. He calls him to be a people, even though he has no reason to, other than his own good pleasure. He calls Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans and to be a people mighty in number. And he calls him specifically in Genesis 12 to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. That through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is working In other words, in history to restore blessing to his people. Psalm 1 lays out two paths in God's kingdom. One that leads to blessing and one that leads to curse. Psalm 1 says that blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of sinners or or stand in the place of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it makes this promise. He will be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf flourishes all seasons. He's not going to be like chaff that the wind blows away, the the, the excess, the trash from the process of getting grain. The wicked are like that, but the one who delights in the Lord will be blessed. The prophets lay out how to live the life of blessing, even in the land of exile, as they explain to God's people how they continue to rebel against him and continue to fight against his desire to help them lead or to, to give them the blessed life. we see in John chapter 10 that Jesus comes to bring blessing. He comes, he says, not to bring death, but to bring life and life abundantly. And we see in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul meditates on what we have in Christ, he says that God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every blessing in the spiritual 
places. All of these texts come together to paint a picture for us of what blessing is, what it means to be blessed. And what I want us to see is that to be blessed by God means more than merely happy. Some Bible translations even would translate the word here in Matthew, happy. It's makarios. We don't really have a good English word for it. So they're trying to capture that and they would say happy. But you would say, how can you be mournful and happy, right? It's not just a, it's not just an emotional state. It's also not merely prosperous. The prosperity gospel would take these texts and would say the blessing that comes is a blessing of financial prosperity or of health prosperity or of some kind of well-being right now. And we'll see with Jesus saying, blessed even are the persecuted, that that may or may not come. That can't be the sum total of what blessed means. I want to offer a tentative definition. I was talking with Molly earlier when we were working on the kids definition of this and just like how do we how do we summarize this word into a concise statement and so my my statement is less concise than the one we have on the children's sermon notes but that's okay i want us to realize that when god calls someone blessed he declares his approval over them and his intent to act on their behalf for their flourishing and joy when god calls someone blessed he declares his approval over them, and his intent to act on their behalf for their flourishing and their joy. There's four key ideas in this. That's why it's so hard to wrap our minds around. What does blessing mean? One of the key ideas is that in blessing, God is actually doing blessing, not just recognizing someone as blessed. In other words, the creator who made everything by the power of his word, when he declares blessed, something actually happens. Jesus, when he declares, blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says that to the poor in spirit, something actually happens. They are indeed put in a situation of being blessed. When I gave these blessings to these kiddos, that's an appeal to God to do these things. If God does it, it it happens. If he says it, that's the way it is. And so the first thing is that in blessing, God is actually doing blessing. Secondly, God's blessing indicates his approval. The blessed are blessed because God accepts them. God does not bless those he does not accept. And so by blessing, he is communicating his acceptance to them. Number three, God is promising to act, especially in dire circumstances. This is important in this sermon because Jesus is declaring that these people in dire circumstances, desperate and destitute, are indeed blessed. And unless God changes something, that's not actually true. Now, God doesn't have to change things right away or immediately. There's, there's this promise of in the future, this will happen. We live in an already not yet. Many of God's blessings because of his kingdom breaking through in Jesus Christ are brought even now. But there's many that await fulfillment. But God promises to act, to bring about a change in circumstances. And number four, God's blessing leads to our flourishing and happiness. There is a happiness component, but it comes on the other side of being blessed by God because of what God does, not because of something that is God's just recognizing in us that we're happy. I'm I'm too blessed to be stressed. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about so much more in that. The best and most biblical way I can think of to put it is that God is in blessing someone. He is declaring a restoration of shalom from the garden. And the challenge with that is we have trouble understanding what shalom means too. So that's okay. 
But that's, that's a way to put it that I think is helpful for us, that in declaring someone blessed, God is declaring a restoration of shalom. This is the trajectory of all things. We looked at it in Daniel uh, chapter, what were we studying? Chapter 9. And we talked about the 70 weeks on Wednesday, and we saw that it's building to a super jubilee, which might not mean anything to you if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, and that's okay, but it's a celebration of the restoration of all things. That's what God is declaring when he declares someone blessed. And when Jesus does that as God, he is declaring these things. What I want us to see here in Matthew is that when Jesus is declaring these blessings, he is showing us what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. That life in the kingdom of heaven is a blessed life. We can see this from the centrality of the kingdom of heaven, even in these texts. If you look at verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, there's a shift. Blessed are you. And it's still talking about persecution. These beatitudes, these blessings are bracketed. It's called an inclusio. They're bracketed together by the kingdom of heaven on one side and the kingdom of heaven on the other side. And they're in response to Jesus who has been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So these are all about the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is that life in the kingdom of heaven is a blessed life. So the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to study today is a declaration of, and a description of, and an invitation into life in the kingdom of heaven, or what I'm going to call the blessed life. It's a declaration and description and invitation into the blessed life. The main point of the sermon text this morning that we want to see that's on the kids' sermon notes as well, the blessed life is a gift from God that we pursue publicly for his glory. The blessed life is a gift from God that we pursue publicly for his glory. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through that. And I want us to see in the text how that's present in four parts and how we experience that blessed life as a gift from God. Before we break down each part, though, let's read the text as a whole. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Let's pray one more time and ask God's help before we look at this text more deeply. Father, I, I pray that you would help us. This, there's so much to say about this, and we only have a limited amount of time to think about it together. I pray that you would help us discern what is helpful. I pray that you'd help us understand, guard our minds from misunderstanding both the nature of your grace and the nature of your demands, the nature of the blessedness that you offer. I pray that you would help us, Lord, paint a picture through the words of your scripture of this blessed life and fill us with a longing to enter into it because it means knowing Christ. So I pray that you do these things for Jesus' glory and for our joy. Amen. The first bit of the Beatitudes I want to look at is verses 3 to 6. And those are the first four blessed sayings. They all follow a similar pattern, right? Blessed are X for Y. They, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason we group these first four is because in Greek, these all start with the letter P. Letter pi, if you've done like circles and stuff like that, that's pi. They all start with this Greek sound P. They're alliterated, I think intentionally, by Matthew to group them together and to help us make some sense of how they relate to one another and how they relate to the whole. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the first one. And right away, we're struck with a question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And so I want to take us through and think about what each of these things mean. But even to answer that question, we have to think about a little bit more clearly, what does spirit mean? Like that could be the spirit of God, the ones who lack the spirit of God. It could be just your disposition yourself. It could be a disposition related to either your circumstances or your sin. There's a lot of different ways we could think about it. And what I want to think about for a second is thinking about this recording of the sermon and Luke's recording in Luke chapter 6. We don't need to turn there, but what I want us to know from Luke chapter 6 is that when Jesus gives this sermon and Luke records it in Luke chapter 6, Luke records, blessed are the poor. He doesn't add spirit. And he talks about those who hunger, not those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, but just those who hunger. And he talks about those who weep. Luke, in other words, emphasizes a social aspect of these things. Those who are experiencing real suffering, not just internal in my own mind suffering, but real actually suffering caused by external circumstances. Luke emphasizes the social and physical dimensions, in other words. He contrasts these with woes to people who are rich, who are full, and who laugh. And Luke emphasizes those dimensions, but Matthew here seems to emphasize more of the spiritual dimension, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Which one is it? They're both reflecting and recording the same sermon. And so I think we have to say, like, there are aspects of both present in both texts. And so in this text, when we think about what does it mean to be poor in spirit, we want to think about both spiritual and social or physical dimensions. These are interconnected in the kingdom of heaven because Jesus comes to restore persons, both body and soul. Not just, not just brains on a stick, to use a metaphor that I've heard recently and enjoy. We're not just brains on a stick. We're people. We're embodied souls. And so Jesus comes to bring restoration. We see this as well in the book of Isaiah, 
We read chapter 61 verses 1 to 3 as part of our worship this morning. And in that time, as we read that verse, you may have noticed that the kind of restoration promised is a restoration, again, that's not just spiritual. There's social dimensions to it. There's grace given to the socially and the spiritually destitute. And so I want us to think about those things as we approach this. So poor in spirit, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in reflecting poor in spirit, is reflecting on the call that's been given over and over by him and John as they've been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance should lead to poverty of spirit, right? Because repentance leads to a recognition that you are sinful and that the right response of a just God would be to judge you. And that's going to crush, potentially, your own sense of self-worth, your own sense of power of spirit or fullness of spirit. There's a spiritual lack present in poverty of spirit that involves recognizing our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness to inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the ones in the kingdom of heaven who don't think it belongs to them, who don't think they deserve it, who can't even comprehend how they could possibly be included in the people of God. Blessed are those people. That's not all he's saying, though, because he's talking to real people, particularly Jews who lived under an oppressive Roman state, And many of them were not just poor in spirit, but poor in reality, like dirt poor, like not just not having nice things, but like not knowing if they're going to be able to eat or not, not knowing whether they're going to have a shelter over their head or not. And Jesus comes and proclaims to them, to people in destitute circumstances, blessed are you, blessed are you because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the ones I came for. In other words, Jesus is saying the ones who recognize their destitute circumstances, but not just recognize that they are broken and destitute, not just recognize that they're sinful and don't have any hope and not just recognize that they are poor and destitute and there's no way to turn around their circumstances. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven because in their poverty of spirit, They turn to the one who is rich. They turn to the one who is full. They turn to the one who possesses all things and who has come to offer them deliverance. Isaiah 61 says the spirit of God is upon his servant to proclaim good news. They turn to the one who proclaims good news because he promises the kingdom of heaven. This is like the Pharisee and the tax collector when the Pharisee's in the temple and he says... Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, including here this this wretched tax collector. And the tax collector can only look at the ground and say, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. That's what poverty of spirit looks like. It looks like turning to God in recognition of your own poverty and crying out and saying, have mercy. And Jesus says, all who do that are blessed. The promise is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such people. Everything. The kingdom of heaven is unimaginably grand and it belongs to these people. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn. This has 
social and spiritual aspects as well. Those who are under crushing oppression by the Roman government are going to be mourning and longing for the day when their people will be restored. We see that over and over in the prophets. That God's people long for the restoration of his kingdom. And that was certainly present in this time. Blessed are those who mourn over the brokenness that's produced by sin in the society. But not only that, recognizing our own poverty of spirit ought to throw us into mourning over that poverty of spirit, right? In other words, we ought not just recognize our sin and say, yeah, I know that I'm unworthy, but we ought also to respond to that recognition with weeping. We ought to have, in other words, the right response to recognition of our own sin is mourning, And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. There shall come comfort for those who mourn. Think about the comfort that comes, even as we mourn over our own sin, in the promises of the gospel itself. That's why we confess our sin, and that's why we hear the words of assurance of grace. Because we are comforted by the promises that God brings to bear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's people, as they suffered under significant oppression, were comforted by the promises that God made to one day restore his people through his Messiah. Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is a word we don't use very often, and it can be easy to misunderstand. It's the same word Jesus uses of himself in Matthew 11, when he says he is gentle and lowly in heart. It's the same word in Galatians 5.23, which describes gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. It's the kind of gentleness of disposition towards God and others that's produced by a realization of our own poverty of spirit. In other words, you will not be meek if you believe that you deserve something and you're being denied it. Right? You'll be aggressively trying to get it. But if you believe that you don't deserve anything, you're going to have a disposition towards God and others that recognizes your own poverty and doesn't insist then that what you don't have is what you ought to have. The promise for the meek is that they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. And we might think of that just as earth in general, but I think there's a very likely illusion here. It's the same kind of language that God uses in promises to his people when he promises that they will inherit the land, the promised land. The land of blessing. The land where God dwells with his people. This is God, through Jesus Christ, speaking to a New Testament people as a new Israel, a new people of God. That he's gathering around and he's proclaiming, you are blessed if you recognize this poverty of spirit in yourself and respond with meekness. Because in these blessings come the kingdom, that comes the land, comes the promise that God will dwell with his people. It's not to the strong, but to the gentle, to the meek, who look to the Lord, that these things come. And then Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We see righteousness show up a ton in this sermon. Jesus really cares about righteousness, and so it's important that we understand, what are we supposed to hunger and thirst for? What ought, the, uh, what ought the taste of our heart be aligned to? 
Righteousness includes certainly right standing with God. That's the way we usually define righteousness. But it's not only right standing with God. When we talk about God's righteousness, he doesn't need right standing with himself. God's righteousness is his justice, his right action to both judge the wicked and to save his people. God's justice and saving actions that display his faithfulness. In other words, blessed is the one who hungers both to be personally right with God through forgiveness of sins and to see God's justice reign. So if you look at the world today and you see the lack of God's justice reign and you long for that, Jesus is speaking to you and saying, blessed are you. Blessed are you for hungering and thirsting after righteousness, looking for the righteousness you yourself do not possess and looking to the world and saying, thy kingdom come, O Lord. The promise that Jesus gives is that that hunger, that thirst, that feeling that you can't live without this, that if God doesn't act, you're going to starve. You're going to die of thirst. That hunger will be satisfied. That's the promise that we have by Jesus Christ, that that hunger will be satisfied. So we see in this text, we see in these first four beatitudes, these first four blessed declarations, that a people who have both physical and spiritual lack, who are destitute and dependent on the Lord, who are needy, who are helpless, to this people Jesus comes and says, blessed. And this isn't go well, or go and be filled, be warm. This isn't blessed, uh, Lord bless you, I'll pray for you. This is the declaration of the God of the universe through his son saying, you are blessed. You are in a blessed state. This is what is, not what should be or might be or one day hopefully will be. This is what is. Blessed are the needy, blessed are the helpless, blessed are the dependents, Jesus says. The first beatitude, the poor in spirit one, is the most significant. And the others, in some ways, are just kind of reflections of that. This beatitude, as the one that is responded to, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is foundational to all the rest. To the whole rest of the sermon, indeed, it's the starting point and the point to keep coming back to. Everything else in the sermon is meant to drive us back to this. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Because if you hear the words that if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then you think, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but it's not happening. That's going to drive you back all the way to poverty of spirit. You're going to recognize how poor your spirit is without Christ. And you're going to be driven then to hear these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the grace that is poured out to you in Jesus Christ. And you're going to respond. It's there that we receive the grace we need to hear the rest of the sermon. God meets our lack with promises of his fullness. This is why we say the blessed life is a gift. This is where we start the blessed life is a gift and our response to that ought to be to enter it to receive it there's nothing you can do to earn it it's almost wholly passive but as we move to the next three we see a movement from almost wholly passive to some action on our part 
There's not much you can do to produce in yourself poverty of spirit. That has to be in some ways God crushing you with his law to help you recognize how significant your poverty of spirit actually is. But the next three have some action on our part. This is why I've titled this section, Pursue Righteousness. Pursue Righteousness. The blessed life is a gift from God, but it's a gift that we pursue. There's movement from attitude in verses 3 to 6 to more action in verses 7 to 9. There's also a movement from lack. Those who lack richness in spirit. Those who lack the power uh, to not be meek. Those who lack the joy and instead mourn. Those who lack righteousness and hunger and thirst for it. There's a movement from lack to fullness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those full of these things. There's a movement from helpless to helpful. And there's a movement from being mostly directed towards God to now being kind of moving out, directed towards neighbor, like the second table of the law. So Jesus says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We know from experience that the only way to be merciful to others is to recognize your own need for mercy. If you assume that everything is hunky-dory with you and that you are always right and never need mercy, you will not be a merciful person. I guarantee it. Mercy flows from the mercy that's already been received. The one who's not merciful does not think he needs mercy. And the mercy that's called for here, blessed are the merciful, is a costly mercy. Because it's an imitation of the mercy that was given to us by God in Jesus Christ. And it cost him everything. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they will receive mercy. If we just read this beatitude, it can make it sound like, here's how it works. If you want mercy from God, you've got to show mercy to others. Right? It can look like a works righteousness. Like this idea that you earn God's mercy by being merciful towards others. Friends, that's not how it works. This is still a gift. It's still preceded by all of these blessing declarations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is nothing you can do to earn God being merciful towards you or to earn God being uh, calling you a son of God or showing you himself. It is all still a gift without the attitude of verses 3 to 6 that's in response to the gift of God's blessed grace. Without that, you cannot possibly show any of the action in 7 to 9 in a meaningful way. You cannot possibly be merciful, in other words, if you are not poor in spirit. You can show a little bit of mercy, but you're going to have something in it for you. You're going to not be pure in heart in how you pursue these things. You're going to be maybe peacemaking, but plotting in the background For your own gain, because instead of being meek, you are seeking to make yourself inherit the earth. If these things don't underlie these actions, then these actions aren't going to be the kind that God indeed blesses. So it's still a gift, even though it sounds a little bit more like, hey, do this and get this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy as a gift. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are full of purity, in other words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 23, or 24, excuse me, talks about this question, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
We're told in Hebrews 12 that we must strive for holiness without which we will not see the Lord. This kind of purity that is required for those who want to be in the kingdom of heaven, to see the Lord. What is the connection with the surrounding Beatitudes? How, does, how do we do purity, in other words? We can do mercy. We can do peace. But how do we do purity? How is that in action? I think the connection is in this idea of fullness. Blessed are the merciful, the ones full of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, the ones full of purity. Why is there blessing? Because in purity of heart comes integrity of action. What you are doing, in other words, lines up with who you are in your inner self. What you are doing is not meant to be, is not a cover for some kind of secret plot that you're trying to accomplish. The neutral of your heart, in other words, is pure. We take action in this one by purifying ourselves, even as our Heavenly Father is pure, in hopes of one day being pure as Jesus Christ. Not in this life, but in recognition that that's the trajectory of our life. As you are conformed and made more like Jesus... By living in obedience to him and his spirit at work in your heart through his word and through his people, you are purified. We strive for purity, knowing that it's blessedness that is received as a gift from God, not purity that then earns us this blessing of we will be able to see God. But as we seek to shift the neutral gear of our hearts towards the purity of God and his word, We will see him more clearly. We have this promise. We will see God. Which most of us just take for granted. See God was a huge deal. Still is. Right? We ought to be more enthused about being able to see God. Being able to know him. See him face to face. Not have this. Not have this lack of knowing the God that we worship. But we get to know him by seeing him. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are full of peace. Blessed are they because they live in imitation to Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker, right? Jesus came, we read about in Colossians 1, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has made peace, and so we seek to live at peace with one another, to be peacemakers, who enter, into, who enter into conflict with the goal of producing peace, with a, a bent towards imitating our Savior. And when we imitate him, we are blessed because we're called sons of God. And this says sons of God, and some of your uh, translations might say children of God, and that's okay. The idea, though, behind sons is that men and women are called sons of God in the sense of displaying the character of the true son of God. This is a promise that as you make peace, you will be more and more changed into the likeness of the Savior whom you love. You'll be more and more like him, and you'll be showing his character forth to others. What I want us to see in all of these things is that they are still gifts But they are gifts we're called to pursue. That we're called to be active in pursuit of the blessed life. We pursue the blessed life, which is righteous living, 
that's grounded in the grace we've already received. We pursue the righteous life that's grounded in the grace that we've already received. The blessed life is a gift from God that we pursue. We might expect that if we pursue this life and we attain it, all these blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. We're clicking along. We recognize our own poverty in spirits. We, we are showing mercy towards others. We're doing all these kind of things. Living in this grace, we might expect that that'll be a life free from trouble. Because that's what our, our minds are pre-programmed by our culture to expect from a blessed life. That it's a life free from trouble. And that if there is trouble, we must be doing something wrong. We must not quite be pursuing the blessed life the right way. We must have to tweak. Maybe we need to be a little more merciful so God will show us a little more blessedness. Friends, that's not how it works. That's not what we see here with the last blessed saying. Verse 10 to 12. We're called not just to receive grace, not just to pursue righteousness, but we're called to rejoice under persecution. This has to color the rest of our understanding of what it means to live the blessed life. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The implication behind this, friends, is that the blessed life that we're called to pursue has to be pursued publicly. Because this kind of persecution, this kind of response from the world to us seeking to live righteously will only come if we're actually living righteously before the world. This will only come if the, other, if the public sees us. We can only fulfill seven to nine if we're living and pursuing this life publicly as well. Blessed are the merciful. You can't be merciful if you're not doing it with other people, right? You can't particularly be a peacemaker if you're not doing it with other people. We also know from verses 13 to 16, when we hear about salt of the earth and light of the world, the call is pretty clear that we must live this life publicly. And the warning is that that will lead not to mere peace, but that will lead to often persecution. Pursuing righteousness privately will not lead to persecution for Jesus' sake, but publicly identifying with Jesus and demonstrating righteousness will lead to that kind of hatred from the world. This is not in contradiction, though, to the blessed life. Jesus tells us that when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. God's picture of this blessed life brings persecution because it condemns the world's picture by implication. So God says the poor in spirit are blessed. The world says those who are have high self-esteem, those who have a can-do attitude, those who don't get too down on themselves, those are the ones that are blessed. Those who help themselves, God helps. Maybe you've heard it said. But that's not the picture of the blessed life that we get. We learn from Jesus that the blessed life comes from to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world's picture of the blessed life says those are blessed who hunger and thirst for whatever will make them happy. We see this picture held out when we think about how merciful action 
shows by contrast how self-centered we are. We often don't like merciful people, in other words, because by implication, they show us that we're not as merciful as we ought to be. And so the world responds with persecution and with hatred. This happens even in marriage. If you think about it, I'm sure if you've been married any amount of time, you've probably experienced this where you're in a conflict and you seek to be a peacemaker and you say, you know what? We ought to stop and we ought to pray. And your spouse's response is you just think you're so holy, don't you? Right? Or maybe you're their spouse, which is probably more likely for me, that, that, that responds, you just think you're so holy. Right? We, we, we don't like our lack being called out by the righteousness of others. And so we respond with aggression. And that's what Jesus is saying. As a collision between the picture of the blessed life that Jesus paints and the picture of the blessed life as the world paints comes together, there's going to be explosive power. Such that even the Son of God was killed over this. When we identify with Jesus, we experience this persecution. And it doesn't sound like the blessed life, but it's at the heart of the blessed life. Notice how the persecution brackets this whole section, right? Like we already pointed out in verse 3, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the only other repetition of that is verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These two themes, poverty of spirit and persecution, are at the heart of the Beatitudes and therefore at the heart of the blessed life. And so we can't just cast it off and say, you know what, that's not how the blessed life is supposed to work and go back to living our lives and pursuing the righteousness of Christ privately. We must instead pursue this blessed life publicly and endure the persecution that is comes to us. And we must heed Christ's commandment in verse 12. Do what? Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice because we're in good company. When we endure persecution for the sake of the gospel, we're in good company with Jesus himself who was killed for the sake of this good life that he proclaimed. And we endure, we're in good company because we're in company with the prophets who said obedience to God in all circumstances, following Yahweh will lead to the blessed life. And God's people said no. And they often stoned them. We're in good company and we have a promised future. Your reward is great in heaven, Jesus says. In this section on persecution, he brings together this whole picture that he's been painting. We have the pattern of the whole blessed life. We experience present suffering. You experience persecution. You experience poverty of spirit. You experience a forced meekness even, based on your circumstances. You mourn. You hunger and thirst and you don't have We experience present suffering, but in the midst of that present suffering, we have promises that sustain us. We have present promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a present statement. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit now. And we have future promises all through bracketing around the or bracketed inside of those present promises are all of these future promises. If you mourn, if you mourn, mourn, you will be comforted. 
If you are meek, you will inherit the earth. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. If you are merciful, you will receive mercy. All of these future promises. Their reward is great in heaven. They shall be. And so, we rejoice and are glad in all of our circumstances because we have our hope set on these promises. On God's faithfulness to presently, truly bless the poor in spirit. And on his faithfulness to one day truly bring the inheritance that we long for. Truly enable us to see him and be called his sons. Truly enable us to experience the reward that's great in heaven. We learn to rejoice then under persecution. Instead of hide. And when we do that, we learn that the blessed life is ultimately about bearing witness to God and his goodness. The blessed life is a gift from God and we pursue this gift publicly and we do it for his glory. As we bear witness, we preserve good and restrain evil in the world. That's what Jesus means by going in in verses 13 to 16 to these metaphors of salt and light. Salt preserves, right? Salt is meant mainly as a preservative and secondarily as a flavoring agent at least in this time that Jesus was talking. It preserves usefulness and preserves flavor. And light is meant as a way of dispelling darkness. We take light for granted now because we live in a place where it's hard to actually go somewhere where it's dark enough that you can't see any light from cities around you. But in Jesus' day, light on a, in a city would have been very significant and very noticeable. Light in a house would have been essential. Light dispels darkness. As we bear witness to this picture of the good life, we preserve the good in the world and we restrain evil. We push it back. As we bear witness, we invite others to come and taste, just like salt does. Come and taste that this is good. And we invite others to come and see that God is good, just like light does, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 verse 8 says. As we do this, as we do this as God's people, we're happy because it's what we're made for. This is what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's not trying to ask you to figure out how salt could possibly stop being salt, because scientifically it really can't. It could use its, lose its usefulness, but it can't stop being salt. This is meant to say, like, this is unthinkable that salt would not salt salt was created and is most happy when it's preserving and amplifying to be not salty would be a miserable existence light is happy when it's illuminating it's unthinkable that you would light a candle and then put it under a basket because you want the light that comes from the fire burning it's a miserable existence for a light to be hidden and jesus is saying we are salt and light in the world And it is what we're made for. And so we are happy. We are living the blessed life when we live how God made us to live. When we do what God made us to do in Genesis 1.28, when he blessed us and said, be fruitful and fill the earth, display his image all over creation. This is what makes us happy. And it's ultimately what glorifies God. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
God is glorified because we are fulfilling what he has made us for when we live the blessed life in light of the blessed one. So friends, the blessed life is a gift from God that we pursue publicly for his glory. I want to make brief application here, particularly to parents, in light of our dedication of these children. We're commanded as parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Some of you might know it as the Shema. We're commanded to teach our children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the word of the Lord ought to be massively prevalent in all we do as parents. And we ought to be teaching our parents or our children, excuse me, what it looks like to obey the commands of the Lord. The blessed life present in these beatitudes is the picture that we ought to be painting as parents for our children. We want to teach our children to long for and pursue and to find this blessed life only in Jesus. We can only do that, first of all, by ourselves partaking in that kind of blessed life. And then by presenting that consistently to our children, the world will constantly hold out counter pictures and false gospels of what the blessed life looks like. Health, fame, beauty, happiness, self-fulfillment, wealth. All these things will fade. All of these provide an empty promise. For the world, the capstone of the blessed life is recognition, retirement, some kind of relaxation and rest because we all seek rest. We were made to seek rest, but the world would seek it in all these things and would not ultimately find it because death still takes all these things. We must hold out to our children the true picture of where the blessed life is really found. Parents, as you raise your children, let your light shine and provide light for the whole household, just like we see Jesus command his disciples here. If we consider the task of raising our children to know and treasure Jesus, we cannot help but recognizing how poor in spirit we are when it comes to that task. If we look at it with any degree of uh, not rose-colored glasses, any degree of seriousness, we see how much we lack, how poor in spirit we are. And so I want to exhort us all to throw ourselves back on the promise that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you seek to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, never forget that you are poor in spirit, but take heart because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. This is a task for all of us to do. Jesus, when he shifts from blessed are those to blessed are you, when he brings that you language in there, That's you like y'all, all of you, all of you together. Jesus is talking to the church together. Together as the church, we are called to hold up this picture of the blessed life to one another. We're called to be salt and light to one another and salt and light to the watching world. We must all take note then and fall back on blessed are the poor in spirit because we're all insufficient for this task. But friends, this sermon as jesus comes and starts preaching this sermon on the mount we're going to see more even as he goes 
that he comes and proclaims these blessings to a people who deserve curse. Jesus comes and enters in the world cursed by sin. And he comes to a people under covenant curses that had rebelled against God and deserving of curse. And what does he do? He blesses them. He blesses them. He becomes a curse for them and redeems them from the curse and then pronounces blessing over them and invites them to pursue the blessed life. And that's what he says to you and I this morning too. If you put your trust in him, you are truly blessed, even though you are poor in spirit and you are given what you need to pursue all of these things, to pursue the fullness of the kingdom of heaven in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us wrap our minds around these things we've just looked at. That you would guard us from thinking that any picture the world would hold out of the blessed life is truly going to satisfy. That you would forgive us for all the ways we consistently pursue those pictures and ignore the very clear picture that you have painted in your word. I pray that you would rescue us and bring us back. That you would mercifully bring us back to the point of continually recognizing our own poverty of spirit. And that we would continually hear the words that you proclaim. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That we would hear those words and that that would fill us with great hope. Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy given to us at great cost to you. I pray that you'd help us to trust in you. Amen.